Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Last week, as we finished up the story of Elijah in the Bible, we talked about the transition, the, the passing of the mantle of prophet from Elijah to Elisha. And from that moment forward, Elisha became God's representative of the people. What we're going to see today is a difficult text in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are Bible critics who would take a look at the text that we're going to look at today and say, how can you serve that kind of God? And while the text certainly presents a few difficulties for us, I think there's some great lessons for us to learn from this interaction that Elisha had from the young men from Bethel. As we go through this, I couldn't help but think of the word respect. And, and, and I, I suppose if you're old like me, uh, the song itself is somewhere in the 50s year old, but you can't help but see the word respect and sing a little Aretha Franklin to yourself. I always wished when I was younger that that was going to be the word that was going to win me the spelling bee because I could spell it. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? R -E I could just say it over and over and over again. But let me ask you a question. And I'm going to give you a moment. I'd love for you to talk with somebody close to you uh, and just think about this. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being excellent, 1 being terrible, how would you gauge the respect that people have for others in our world today? 1 to 10, okay? Go ahead. Give you, I'll give you 30 seconds or so to talk with, about some, with that with someone close to you. And give your reasoning. All right, I would love to take some brave volunteers who would say uh, what their number is and maybe a little reasoning they shared with someone. Anybody want to share like what their scale of 1 to 10? You can't be wrong. That's a good way to start. Colin, you got one for me? You have a 1. Okay, a 1. And just because it's bad, it's terrible, nobody respects anybody? Okay, 2. We got, it. We got him up to 2. I wasn't trying to convince you of otherwise. Anybody higher than 6? Okay. Oh, Joel's higher than six. All right, Joel. You, you're an optimist, Joel. I love that about you. Yeah. I don't know, what, I don't know where I would put it because it, it probably depends on the setting that you're in and what's going on, but I, I don't think any of us is surprised at the low ratings that we've given, right? If you look around, and, and certainly some people who are in authority have done a lot to not earn the respect of others, whether you're talking about people who are in positions of government or law enforcement or pastors in churches, there are reasons that we can always find for not respecting people in authority. But I also think the words of Jesus come into play here. As he was talking about the end times, he said this, the love of most will grow cold. The Apostle Paul also said as the end times approached that, that people would be lovers of themselves. And I think that's what we see in our world, isn't it? Part of the reason for the, the lack of respect that we sometimes witness is that people are caught up, we are caught up in our own lives, in what's best for me, and, and we can't think about other people as God maybe would want us to. 
And so today, as we take a look at these three verses from 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to see just how far the disrespect uh, went in Elisha's day, what God did about it, and again, what lessons we can learn. So as we look at this text, respect for God's prophet will be our theme. But here are the two things I'd like you to take from it today. How we interact with the others. How do we respect others? And then secondly, the joy that we have in knowing that God cares for us. He cares for his own. I'm just going to read verse 23 to start, chapter 2 of 2 Kings, verse 23, just to set up what's about to happen. Here's what's going on. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. We'll talk about it, don't worry. Just a, just a few thoughts. Uh, I don't know how well you can see this map, but this is the last couple of, of uh, days, I suppose we could say it, Elijah and Elisha's life. They had gone from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho over to the Jordan River where they crossed that Jordan River and Elijah was taken to heaven in the whirlwind. From there, Elisha went to Jericho and now today we're going to see him going past Bethel, walking past Bethel. By the end of the text, he'll be back up to Mount Carmel and then down to Samaria as well. All of that happening in Israel and that'll become important in just a moment. The name Bethel, some of you might even know, uh, it means house of God. And it's Jacob who gave it that name. As Jacob was running away, fleeing from his brother Esau, he laid down at night and had a dream. A dream of a stairway going to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And when he woke up in the morning, he named the place Bethel, house of God, that God's presence was there. But the history of the people of Israel proved that that name, Bethel, wasn't necessarily the best name for the town. Shortly after Solomon's reign, the kingdom split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and in that northern kingdom was the town of Bethel. It's where Jeroboam, the very first king of the divided kingdoms, decided to set up a golden calf for his people to worship. So they didn't have to go to Jerusalem outside of Israel for their worship. It seems that in the hundred plus years that had come after that, the false gods, the idolatry in Bethel had just mushroomed. So, so maybe it doesn't surprise us that when the prophet of God, Elisha, is walking past this town of Bethel, he is jeered and mocked by these young men. It's interesting, I did quite a bit of reading this week about the two words, there's two different words used for the boys in the Hebrew text, and both of them can mean as young as a toddler and into the teenage years. So where on the scale were these boys? The Bible simply doesn't tell us. But they're mocking, mocking Elisha, and they decided to pick on a physical characteristic of Elisha. Apparently, he was bald. Now, I know there are some men in the congregation today who are follically challenged, but can I share this with you? Somebody once said to me, God only created a few perfect heads, the rest he put hair on. So you always have that you can share with other people. But don't you see this is a lot more than just about the baldness of Elijah, Elisha. This is a lot more than just making fun of a receding hairline. 
what they really were getting at is not wanting Elisha to be near their town. They knew what he represented. And so it wasn't just Elisha they were mocking, but God. And that too, the Bible tells us, is going to happen in the last times, as the last day is approaching. People will be scoffers, scoffing at everything that God stands for and what he has to say. Peter spells that out so well in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so we shouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, as God's people, we should live with the expectation that from time to time, people are not going to appreciate your Christian faith or mine. That we might face ridicule and mocking and even people might despise and hate what God stands for. But if you think about it, there's, there's two directions we can go with that. We can try to defend ourselves and fight back and put all of our energy into trying to stop people from mocking God and his word. Or we can guard our reaction. And think about how would God have us respond when those things happen? I found this quote from a, a pastor named Charles Swindoll this week. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of how you react to it. I'm not sure if that can be scientifically backed with data. But you get his point, don't you? Life comes at you and your reaction makes so much of a difference. Even think about how your day can change if one thing happens that sours you on the day, the whole rest of the day can be ruined. Or vice versa. If you look for the silver lining, even in the worst situations, your day improves. But maybe it really comes down to that when we think about how others view Christianity. As I thought about that, it brought some shame to me. Because I know that, that when people speak out against God and his word, when they mock me and other Christians, I know that there have been times that the words that have come out of my mouth have been anything but loving and kind. Maybe you can relate. I've tried to defend God in a, in a way that I thought was good, but, but ended up maybe giving people the incomplete wrong impression of who God is and what he stands for. I wonder how many people have been turned away from Christ and from Christianity because of the way Christians speak and act with unloving words, unkindness. I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but I know, I know that People in their efforts to defend the faith have said some things on Facebook and other places that might make our Savior sad. And I know it's hard. It's hard because we love God and we love what he stands for and we want everyone to love God like we do. But how do we get them to see the love of God? Probably not through our harsh words. And so it's good for us to guard our reactions, even when it hurts, even when we get upset. Look how Elisha reacted. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on, there, uh, went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. I'm just let those words up there for a second to let them sink in. Because I spent some time this week wondering, how should I think about what Elisha did? How should I think about Elisha's reaction, that, that Elisha's curse 
was called down on those boys. And I think my first inclination is to defend him. To say, well, he's the Lord's prophet, he knows what he's doing. But, but I think we know that all of God's prophets are just as sinful as you and me. And so maybe we don't have to excuse for Elisha's behavior as much wonder, you know, why was he so harsh and vengeful? But then there's the other side. God listened to his plea. It, it was God who was the one who sent the vengeance. Whether what Elisha did was proper or not, God acted. God, God did what Elisha was asking. And two bears mauled 42 of the boys. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment because the word maul doesn't necessarily mean in our language, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were harmed more than just attacked. But, but here's what the original word in Hebrew says. It means to break apart or to break open or to separate or to cleave. That doesn't sound great to me. And so we're left with the question, why? Why did God choose to act so harshly to those young boys, those boys who were mocking Elisha? And maybe the first thing I can say is we should just let God be God. I can't know the mind of God. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways. But maybe we get a little insight in Scripture when in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells us if they persecute me, it's Right? Rejection of me, rejection of you is really a rejection of the Heavenly Father. And I think about this. Part of our uncomfortableness with this kind of text is I don't think there's a single one of us sitting out here unless you had a much different teenage years than I did. Or even today, who can control our tongues? James says no one can tame the tongue. And so we know that words have come out of our mouths that have been mocking of others, that have been disappointing to our Savior. And what if, what if every time that happened, God said, that's it, you're done. Would there any, be, any of us be here today? I don't think so. And, and so we, when we see God act in such a harsh manner, it brings back to us what sin does. That word, that idea of cleaving, that's exactly what sin does between us and God. It's frightening, isn't it? To see God's almighty power. And though our sins separate us from God, it makes all the more amazing that God has brought us back together through our Savior, Jesus. Because bears were a part of the text, I did some thinking about bears this week. And of course, this is just how God does things. When you're thinking about bears, then you notice every story in the news about bears. Has anybody seen this story in the news about the bear from China? If you didn't see it, it as they say, went viral this week. Because this bear's name is Angela. She's a four-year-old sun bear from a zoo in China. And Angela apparently loves to stand on her hind legs and wave to people as they come visit the zoo. As a matter of fact, since this story went viral, apparently 20,000 people a day are visiting the zoo. But here's what happened. People took this video and splashed it all over the internet, and others said, that's not a bear. It's a person in an elaborate bear costume. 
And their reasoning was the way she's standing, her posture. And I don't know if you can see it on the picture, but there's kind of skin folds in the back. I'm not trying to body shame the bear, sorry. But there are people who look at that and say, well, that can't be a bear. That doesn't happen. And of course, the zoo actually had to come out and defend itself. That is really a bear. And they showed pictures of her eating and doing other bear-like things. But it was kind of amazing how fast that got out of control. And I thought to myself, we kind of think of bears that way, don't we? They're nice and cute when you see them behind enclosures. And you think, oh, what's, so big? what's the big deal about a bear? And then I thought, 42 and two. Two bears, 42 young men. How did they do that? And you realize how thankful we can be that God doesn't act in judgment in that way. You see, really what I took from this text as I was finished studying it is, is rather than focusing on the bears and focusing on God's judgment, maybe could we just focus on the support that God meant to show to his prophet, Elisha? Here's Elisha taking over from a very respected prophet in Israel, one who was taken to heaven without dying, and he's mocked. And God could show him in one act his power and the support that he had for Elisha. That, that he had Elisha's back as he did the Lord's work. Finally, in spite of the fact that Elisha was the one who asked for the curse, called down the curse in the name of the Lord, it was God who acted in vengeance. And the Bible tells us very clearly that's where vengeance belongs. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what that means for you and me. We don't have to be the ones that get even. We don't have to be the ones that settle the score. God doesn't need us to defend him. It does not wrong for us to defend him, but we can do so with guarded words, knowing that it's God ultimately who is the one who is the judge of all things. And God's love for you and for me is what brings us back together. Sin separates us, but God sent Jesus. And Jesus is the one who brings us back together as he went to a cross to die for us, as he rose from the dead to guarantee our forgiveness. And if that's the love that God has for you and me, who cannot control our tongues, who mock other people, who say things we don't want to say, then who am I? Who am I to decide that somebody else isn't worthy of that same love that God has for us? We know it. The Jesus who died for us is the same Jesus who died for all people. And we can leave any kind of vengeance, any kind of revenge, any kind of punishment in the hands of our God. It's comforting, isn't it? To know that, that God can stop a fire from burning three of his servants, that God can protect Elisha from the mocking that he was receiving, that, that God is watching over you and me. And that same God who promises that he's always caring for us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he is the one who is our helper, that's the God we can trust to fulfill every single promise, to work for good in all things, to guide us to a home that's free from all of the mocking and troubles and trials of this life, because that's what Jesus has won for us forever in heaven. Some takeaways from our sermon today. Number one, as God's people, we can expect and be prepared to be mocked for our faith in Jesus. Jesus said, if they persecute you, me, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And in this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Number two, God has called us to be peaceful and leave revenge in his hands. 
In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul has a section about revenge and talks about how we should live at peace with one another and, and that when you treat someone with kindness when they've mistreated you, it's, it's heaping burning coals on their head. And so Paul says this, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Finally, we leave we have God's support. He loves us and cares for us and is leading us to eternal joy with him in heaven. The writer to the Hebrews in quoting Psalm 118 says this, we have, so we say with confidence, I am in the Lord's hands. What can mortal, mere mortals do to me? This is the first time I've ever preached on this text. It's not an easy text, is it, to pick apart? You can understand, can't you, a little bit why people might be critical of us for serving a God who would send bears after 42 young people? And so I thought, well, when you look, about, look at texts like that and try to, to come to grips with that, it, it really starts with this, doesn't it? We have to acknowledge. We have to acknowledge our own sin. We have to acknowledge that we fall far short of the glory of God and that God is perfectly just and right when he acts in judgment. But I hope it also leads us to rejoice, to rejoice that that's not God's usual way of dealing with people, that instead God prefers to deal with people in terms of his love and mercy, and that's why he sent his son Jesus who makes us one with God again, though sin had separated us. I think it's good for us to recall that our ways are different than God's ways and his thoughts are so far above ours as well. And finally, trust that God knows what he's doing and he's just and right in all of his actions. And finally, it teaches us, doesn't it, to treat all people with respect, to love others in the same way that God loves us, to think about that love of God for us and then let that spill over into our lives for others. And maybe I'll leave you with this question today. Wouldn't it be great if every Christian collectively and individually was known as people who constantly show the love of Jesus, if we were known for our love? Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.